Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. Getting the old audio recording machine fired up here a little later than expected, about 7.40 p.m. on a Monday night. So lots of great questions as usual from you. Thank you. One or two new question submitters, which I love. Please call out when you're sending in a question for the first time so I can celebrate you. want to say big thanks, as always, to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com for their ongoing patronage, belief in all that we do here with this silly little audio experience. Experience? Experiment. Sure. One of the two. All that we do here. Lots of stuff going on. Can't tell you about a lot of it because I'm still working on a lot of it, but boy... It's been a fun week or so on the phone trying to figure out a bunch of things. So hoping to have some fun stories starting to flow here very soon. Talking about drivers trying to do the Indy 500 and some other initiatives that sound really darn cool. Other than that, I want to say big thanks as well to a number of our listeners who uh, really took the time last Tuesday to celebrate all of our partners, in particular, wanting to give special extra love, north of the border love, to torontomotorsports.com, all that they do for us, t-shirts, the stickers, the hats, all the racing memorabilia, models across IndyCar, F1, sports cars, you name it. Great partner of the show. So cool to see the informal uh, listener group known as the Prue Day which is modeled after my last name and my favorite WWE tag team, The New Day. Uh, fun to see the Prue Day come together, and a lot of folks put on their favorite TorontoMotorsports.com uh, Week in IndyCar t-shirt and just celebrate our good pal Derek Koska and his delightful business in Canada. So hopefully uh, we'll get to do that here, I don't know, maybe next month and do that for Cooper, and maybe the month after that we do that for the Justice Brothers. But just want to say thanks. Uh, it was welcome, was received in a, a greatly, greatly appreciative way by TorontoMotorsports.com and the Justice Brothers and also Cooper Tires, who were mentioned and featured on those shirts too. So pretty cool, guys, seriously. And uh, men and women, adults, Young adults, uh, John Wojnar, one of the leaders of the group, still struggling with the fact that you're only 25 or so. Um, yeah, you need to get older because you act older. So a little bit of a disconnect there. Other than that, uh, what else can I tell you before we get rolling with your first question? Oh, hey, you know who our guest is going to be on Wednesday? Our French fry, our beloved French fry, my beloved French fry, Sebastian Bourdais. Figured it'd be a good week to have him on. Just did a little bit of IndyCar testing recently, was very, very quick there. But also, he is competing at the 12 Hours of Sebring this weekend. Get a little bit of uh, double duty with our man Bourdais. Talk IndyCars, talk a little bit of sporty cars, and just catch up with our man. That's it. We're going to get rolling right now. Uh, i got to get dinner going for Mrs. Pruitt and a whole bunch of other stuff. So i got coffee with me, not beer, not anything else, just some coffee to try and keep the... Uh, motor revving a bit ian keyworth you open the show for us you say mp good news the iRacing racing challenge series is back was this as a result of the many folks here in the podcast and you 
than asking folks at IndyCar whether they're going to do it again. Says, let's hope so. Uh, any predictions? Maybe a Pagano versus Lando Norris rematch? Now that would be amazing, right? Uh, our pal Simon, uh, he stepped on some painful parts of his body in that whole interaction last year, but we wouldn't take it back, right? Uh, getting caught lying. That's pretty good, especially during a, you know, playing uh, at the sport compared to driving the real thing. Oh, that was a blast. Uh, no, Ian, I can take no credit for it whatsoever. I would say that if it weren't for the season being pushed back a month, we wouldn't have it. I think if things had kicked off as planned at St. Pete, uh, I would say I doubt we would have the uh, iRacing series back. But since everything is now kicking off in April, and man, it just feels like it's forever from now, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. So, no. Wasn't us, but I love the thought that Anything I do or we could do on the show here would influence IndyCar. That's a funny thing. Robbie Bergeron, Marshall, says, I'm going to make a bold prediction for this year. Connor Daly wins Carlin's first race at Gateway. Says, I think they've learned enough from last year to not only get him on the pole again, but for him to uh, keep it up front and manage tire degradation and pit stops. How spicy is this take from ketchup to ghost pepper sauce? Also says continued prayers for my wife and I. Thank you, Robbie. I I don't think there's a lot of spice there. I think that's well spotted, my man. Connor, I mean, he's as sharp as he has ever been. And that Carlin team sure was looking pretty darn good. Only only question is they lost their, their lead engineer. Uh, he's now over at Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan. So, yeah, without Matt there, that's just the question. Without Mr. Greasley in the uh, the senior race engineer position at Carlin, will there be any kind of step down, step back, or stumble in terms of overall competitiveness? If not, uh, I think your, your take here, not so spicy. Maybe uh, put a couple dollars on that one because... I think the odds will be uh, more favorable than ever, Robbie. Darren Dubois says, biggest off-season non-driver move, mechanic, crew, manager, etc., that will make the biggest impact this season. Ooh, wow. That's a great one, Darren. And if I was a smarter monkey, I would have the... F- Actually, I already have the, it open. So, yeah, the full list of teams and drivers sitting in front of me. Huh, yes for biggest. So that's a single example. I might expand that out to just a couple. Uh, mentioned him already based on their preseason testing and even just their pace at the end of last year. I think AJ Foyt Enterprises and Sebastian Bourdais. I think that might be a pretty darn big one right there. Uh, I don't foresee any major changes or know of any major changes on the Andretti side to say, oh, that's a key difference. Uh, Hinch has already been there. You know, I don't think that's a game changer to say biggest thing during the off season. Not totally sure on whether Felix Rosenquist will be looked at as the biggest once we get to the end of the year here at Errol McLaren SP, but he's, He's on my list of guys to follow. And if he does have a breakout year there, then yeah, strong potential. He could be the person for sure. 
I think Alex Pillow is going to be a welcome surprise at Canassi. Beating Scott Dixon surprise? No. But I think the expectations for him are low enough that I think he's going to over-deliver. And I don't say they're they're low as in, boy, we don't think he's that good. Just they don't know exactly what they've gotten. They're going to find out, and I think they're going to be pretty happy. Uh, I think Romain Groschamp is going to do big things for coin for sure. I'm just looking throughout the rest of everything else. Scotty McLaughlin, again, we expect him to do some pretty big things. You know what I might use as the answer to this? Yeah, okay, I'm going to use it as the answer to this. It's a little bit of a callback, Darren, and that is we're going to go Arrow McLaren SP. We're going to go Craig Hampson, who is their technical director, also will be engineering Juan Montoya for the 500, but he didn't get a chance to really do all that he was wanting to do and had planned to do last year. COVID was a big thing that knocked back some of their plans, especially integrating McLaren from the UK, their engineering team into the Aero McLaren SP overall plans and improvements. I think with a full year and an off season and no real roadblocks, finally, I think Craig, we might look back at, at the end of 2021, see where Aero McLaren SP has ended up and say, wow, that guy just flexed some very big mental muscles and that team benefited more than ever. We're going to go next to Brian Burrell. Wanted to get your thoughts on shortening up the road course weekends to two days, something which IndyCar recently confirmed, by the way. So it heard somewhere this will save approximately a million dollars a day across team series partners, etc. Any negatives you are missing? No, Brian, I don't think so. I respect this move. It's a timely move would say it is a responsive move, something where even for the team's handful of teams that are very good at finding sponsorship, there are a painfully few number of entities in the IndyCar paddock that are just feeling invincible right now. And I like this adaptation, Brian. We also have some bigger costs coming up here in a year and a half or so. New motor package we expect to possibly cost a bit more for sure since it's going to be a hybrid. Just know that anything that is going to take money in a happier direction right now and bringing costs down, I don't think you're going to get a lot of arguments. The question here Talking road courses again, knocking a Friday off of a formerly three-day Friday, Saturday, Sunday deal. Yeah, uh, of course, there's going to be some negatives among the fans who really loved seeing IndyCars spanning three days. This doesn't mean that all IndyCar weekends will only be two days. It means that for the IndyCar competition portion, they will only be on track for two days. So, Cooper Tires in the Road to Indy series, any other support series, you could very well see plenty of running on a Friday or however it might be structured. 
That would be the only thing, though, just from the fan standpoint. Boy, if you love your IndyCar, you love your road races slash street courses and just really, truly want to make sure that you have as many days as possible. And I was once that person just as a fan. Yeah, this might be a little bit bumpy right now, but I'd say bigger picture here, looking at the overall picture, if this makes teams healthier, if this allows teams to keep more employees on full-time, cover everything they need during the off season instead of really they're almost i don't want to say no but very few teams that say hey thanks keep you here for a couple weeks after the end of the season to help polish up and pretty things and then we're going to cut bait and maybe we'll see you back start of the new year it's not so much a thing anymore brian still does happen in some instances but maybe this is something that just helps teams enough make sure that they don't have to do that as much. Let's go to our pal Ryan Terpstra. He says, did you enjoy the Monty Python theme last week? Yes, indeed. There were many Monty Python-related things. On a more relevant topic, can we do a road course-only rookie this year? It says McLaughlin is still likely to win, but is the only one who can win if it's a full-season schedule. IndyCar needs to adapt this year. I hear you. Uh, if they were to do such a thing, I do believe they would need to announce it's a one-time only going in, and if there's a reason to keep it for next year, maybe they would. But back in, what, I think 87 in Formula 1, 87, 88 or so, they had, I think it was the, the Clark Cup, the Jim Clark Cup, and it was for all the teams that didn't have turbos and all the teams that had either a Cosworth or Judd V8 that just didn't have the horsepower to compete for wins. It's a bit of a short-term thing knowing that Formula One as a whole was going to non-turbo in 89. So they came up with this cup. It was, there was no world championship attached to it, but it was basically the, hey, yeah, you're not playing for the big prizes, but we don't want to ignore you, and you are here, and this is where we're going in the future. So for those of you who are already there, we'll come up with a cup, and you go win a cup. If you're using a non-turbo engine and so was there for a year or two and then went away. I'm kind of thinking in this direction here, Ryan, eh, do it for a year, maybe two if needed, but I hope we don't have too many more. Romaz going to do a lot, but not all Jimmy Johnson's going to do a lot, but not all, etc. type scenarios. Uh, same with what Max Chilton Ed Carpenter, we already know he's going to do not a lot. But anyways, yeah, come over the cup. Watch him fight over it. That'll be fun. Uh, Matt Andretti. Hi, Matt. Uh, Matt underscore Vieira 18 or Vieira at Vieira 18. I don't know. I'm trying to pronounce things. I probably shouldn't. Um, anyways, Matt says, hey, Marshall. First of all, I want to wish the best to your wife. Everybody here in Brazil is cheering for her. Thank you, my man. Says, want you to know how do you think this year will go for Elu Castroneves? knowing that'll be his first time that he will do multiple races in a season for a different team. I think it could go okay, Matt. I will admit that being down in Monterey for the first test that he did with the Marshank Racing Team, I will just put a lot of that down to been out of an Indy car for a little while and needing to get to know a new team drive this chassis at this track, which he's never done before. I'll just put it down to uh, a lot of learning curve 
type things with a brand new team. Uh, had some offs, had a big old lurid spin to end the day. Um, they were down a lot, just wasn't that sharp of a day, but I'll, I'll just write that off. He, he has the potential to do some pretty important things for the team. What I'm most curious to find, Matt, I know you asked, how do I think he will do? I think he's going to do okay. I also think, I think it's going to be an interesting year for him in one specific area and that is he's always been a highly natural talent there are some drivers who have to work hard to extract all of their skill and demonstrate it it's never really been elio he's been flat out maximum attack million miles an hour at all times just that's who he is be interesting to see how things work this year, six races with the Meyershank Racing Team, his teammate to Jack Harvey, where's he at in that regard of natural speed? Is he having to push a little bit in ways that he has not had to before? The IndyCar series he's coming back to, it is faster, meaner, nastier, all kinds of things than when he left it. Not saying it's night and day difference, Matt. Just saying it, it's different. The The youth movement is certainly, it's on fire. There are badass young drivers throughout the championship. There weren't to the degree when he was last in it full-time. Jack Harvey is a teammate, no joke. That kid's super quick, and his only he's only getting faster. So what I'll be curious to see, which makes it hard for me to give you an exact answer, Right? I don't think he's going to do poorly. I don't think he's going to embarrass himself. I don't think any of those things will happen. But will he find himself in a position where he is having to exert extra effort to try and be as fast as the many drivers now who are just blindingly rocket fast at all times, like he was for the majority of his career? Coming back, mid-40s, been in sports cars for a couple of years, won a championship, did well, all those things that we know that are positive. But who are we getting back? Is he just going to be the same easy, fast Castro Neves? Or is he going to be someone who, uh, trying a little bit too much, a little bit too hard, which is where mistakes come from? He, he's known for being the guy who has at least one off per weekend. Not necessarily a crash, but... There's at least one time per event where he's off in the dust, the dirt, the rocks, the whatever. He's always pushing crazy hard. Just be curious to see how the rest of the series in their elevation of speed will maybe push Elio into a place where he's uncomfortable. I don't know, but that's what I want to see. The answer to that is going to tell us how his season goes. Let's see. Chris Ward. Does Hay and P have noticed that Devlin DeFrancesco has been driving with Kamoa sponsorship in the road to Indy, with that being Fernando Alonso's company? Does he have a stake in the team, or is it simply a solid sponsor? It's a great question. Sure. Question, Chris. This is my unpolished chart of a show, by the way, for those who are listening for the first time. Um, I leave in all the mistakes because, hey, they're an accurate representation of who I am. Let me take a sip here. Um. I don't know. I will try and find the answer and 
report back uh, next week if I do remember to. I'll shoot Devlin a text and ask. Let's go to Chris Albrecht. says, MP, I believe natural talent and hard work are both important. says, when Simon Pagino was on your podcast a few weeks ago, he said something about hard work that caught my attention. He said something along the lines that he could guarantee that he would outwork any other driver willing to do whatever it would take to be successful. He says, what exactly does that mean? Outside of actual seat time and the physical working out, what all are the ways in which a driver can put in hard work to be the best out of the pack? And a follow-up on that, who do you think are the most hardworking drivers in the paddock? I would steer the answer, Chris, towards engineering. I would steer that towards simulation work. Getting stuck in to understand everything. I mean, this is the area where for a thinking driver, that is Simon's characterization. You have the natural talents, the ones who just do, and (laughs) you try and understand how they do it. You don't always understand, but you know that they're always up front or there, thereabouts, uh, who then also put in a lot of hard work as well. Uh, in the areas you've mentioned and the ones that I just did, really trying to parse through all the data, understand all the things from a setup standpoint, the reasons behind what each change will do, should do, banking all this information, becoming a student, really treating the season, preseason work, off-season effort, everything like going to college, going to school, trying to become a someone who receives a degree in knowing everything that they possibly can about the car, about the team's engineering R&D efforts, doing simulator work both at the big multi-axis Dallara simulator, Chevy, Honda, etc. Also at home in their own simulators that they will come up with. These kinds of areas where you'll really say, okay, this person is truly outworking the others. For someone like Simon, who is very much in his head, uh, he, he's not, and he'll tell you, it's a thing he's always working to improve, not so much in that kind of lizard brain. I've turned off my brain. I'm just driving on pure instincts. This is where he sees the ability to outwork the next person as a, a vital part of how he does what he does. Uh, you then... Look at some of the other drivers. I know you wanted to know those who would fall into that crazy work, outwork category. Just name a couple that come to mind, and it's not at the exclusion of any others. It's just naming a few. Uh, Sebastian Bourdais would be one for sure. Uh, This, yeah, uh, yeah, (laughs) obsessive. And I say that in the most positive way. Uh, Scott Dixon, someone else whose natural talent is just ridiculous off the charts. And he matches that with learning all that he can, absorbing all that he can, being someone who's in the middle of trying to make things better. Uh, Rossi jumps out as someone in that vein. Who else? Uh, Just pick one other for the sake of picking one other. Um, Who else will I throw in here? There's some that I'm intentionally not mentioning because I know that they don't put in the work, uh, the work that would get them over the top. 
I'll just leave it there. How's that? Uh, I mean, I guess a newcomer, we could mention Jimmy Johnson. Good Lord. That guy is between uh, taking uh, painting lessons and skiing and whatnot, all things he deserves. So I'm just giving a little bit of guff. But this is a guy who's just thrown himself into the deep end to uh, try and learn everything. Uh, So there are a couple for sure where you go, yes, they have families, they have duties outside of their day job, but uh, every moment that they can when they're not being dad or husband or whatever it might be, they are, boy, just obsessively pouring through everything. Uh, Dario was certainly that guy for sure, just nutty. Um, how much time he invested in trying to master everything about driving the car when he wasn't in the car and then had that stupid talent to match. So there's some parallels here. Uh, It's not a coincidence that uh, many of the best who've ever done it or continue to do it have the supernatural plus the super work ethic side and combine those two to just, yeah, whoop up on lots of people. Um, where else should we go here? We'll do one more. Uh, and then it's actually late enough. But I already had to take a couple breaks you weren't aware of. Um, and I'm going to get back to this in the morning. Uh, David Barker says, whether it's the next engine, social media, video games, or even awareness and social issues, IndyCar just seems to be following what others are doing. Why is it that IndyCar seems to never be bold and take initiative? It's almost like they're afraid to stand out and be noticed. Yeah, I'd agree with some, but not all. I know that a number of the things you mentioned here, we could certainly say, but I'm not just thinking, David, of 2020 or 2021. I'm thinking back a bit longer than that. Uh, You know, we could say IMSA. They're going to a new formula, new hybrid engine the same year as IndyCar. Um, probably say the same thing about their social media. They don't have a video game. Uh, same place on social issues. Um, you know, NASCAR, we know, jumped in pretty heavily on the social side. Uh, obviously, Bubba Wallace was a, a huge driver of that uh, side as well. Um, they certainly aren't there yet on engine. Uh, they are pretty darn good on social media. I think there are video games there, but again, that's a massive company. But even then, I don't know if I'd paint them as the most forward-looking. They have some forward-looking things coming, but uh, boy, feels like they could have been here a decade ago at least. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, David. There's certainly many things where I wonder why IndyCar is so slow, hesitant, or otherwise to be bold, as you mentioned mentioned this before in the podcast probably been a little while it's not a brand new company it's not a startup or in that honeymoon early new company phase where they're wanting to be bold they're wanting to stand out in by large bold actions and i can understand the fact that as an institution speedway's been around for more than 100 years There's a lot of things, a lot of people there, not a ton of folks that have been around, you know, working there for 50 years or whatever. But as an institution, I would say this is a ship 
that still, despite new owners and those new owners, Penske Entertainment, saying, hey, uh, we're going to step up on social issues, we're going to try and do some of this, some of that, they're turning the ship faster than I've seen it turn this century, without a doubt. But it's still an oldish institution, still very much an embedded institution in the state where it comes from, in the general culture and society that it lives within. It's not necessarily that, hey, we're going to do something, off we go. Uh, I'd say just about everything they do is is workshopped. Hey, you know, 200, 300 plus thousand people participate in everything that we do. And there's tons of tradition, tons of heritage. Uh, we know the age, gender, and demographics of everything who comprise our Indy 500, Brickyard, you name it, audience. We know everything about who we cater to. And we also know we are, in general, a series and track about traditions. Those are just a lot of things, David, that would conspire against rapid change, rapid development of almost anything. Now, again, of the things that will be interesting to follow and track with Roger Penske and Penske Entertainment in charge, they sure seem to not be hanging around on many topics seem to be pressing the throttle more than I've seen any other any other leadership group uh, really make happen in the bigger scheme. I'm not talking about, hey, we changed body kits or some other technical thing, but just overall. So coming out of COVID, coming out of a rumored loss of $80 million last year, I would say... Uh, Give them a little bit of a longer leash here and see where we're at at the end of the year. I really, truly would look forward to us revisiting this, sending this back in with your thoughts and others' thoughts. Hey, they had a year. Yeah, COVID's still here. We get that. But things are starting to get back to normal. What did they do? What gains did they make in what areas? So there you go. Uh, JJ Gertler, you're going to take us home for monday night so marshall back in the cart days there used to be an auxiliary cara uh, made up c-a-r-a made up of the drivers spouses and partners did a lot of charitable activities is there something like that now for indycar awesome question jj gertler spoke about this a week or two ago with the delightful funky ed carpenter when we were at monterey uh, his amazing wife, Heather Carpenter, uh, oversees the IFF. So C-A-R-A has become IFF, the Indy Family Foundation. And I understand that with their kids growing and being more active and everything, I know that uh, Heather is hoping to find someone else to maybe step up and take the baton from her. But yes. Uh, they do some pretty awesome stuff. One of the things, charity little auction type deal I want to get going here, ASAP, um, have had the uh, person affiliated with the donated items that are going to go up for bid. They have said, please 
send those proceeds to the Indy Family Foundation when I asked, where, where would you like, what would you like this to benefit? Uh, when Robin Miller uh, was initially diagnosed and had some massive bills hit him right away, uh, the Indy Family Foundation stepped up and contributed a nice, nice size check. It's all from folks who donate and uh, this being put to good use to exactly what the name is meant to represent, indie families. And so whether that is, again, mechanics, whomever, uh, loathsome media types, uh, they do some good work there. So while I don't foresee the couple of items that uh, are going to go up and hopefully bring in nice amount of money i don't think it's going to be a ton but regardless yeah we're going to want that that will be going to the indy family foundation and just another quick note of something i remembered last year two years ago uh when we did that uh 20th anniversary of greg moore's death video and podcast at monterey had some prints made and put up dario and pt and pappas and and whatnot all signed them Tony Kanon, uh, we auctioned those off and, uh, torontomotorsports.com, I should say, sold them. Uh, they were up for sale and, uh, sold them and sent the proceeds, uh, to the Indy family foundation. So yeah, um, good people really appreciate them and appreciate all of you who already know about the Indy family foundation and contribute to them. Daniel Summers Gill, you're up next says with Pietro Fittipaldi being announced, as racing at Le Mans in the LMP2 class, rather than doing gateway for Dale Coyne, will he be replaced? He says, hashtag me personally, gateway doesn't have the crazy top speeds of Texas or Indy. Maybe Romain Grosjean could do it. Standing in if he's comfortable driving the DW12 chassis by then. Great question, Daniel. I think you sent it in last week as well. So I dropped a note to our pal, the quadruple awesome Karina Redmond looks after Dale Coyne Racing's PR, has for a little while. She said, according to Pietro, so it sounds like she reached out to our young Brazilian friend, uh, Brazilian-American friend, says that his priority is IndyCar, and doing Gateway is his preference. Also says that he's not too worried about it at the moment. Since racing calendars in Europe are changing all the time due to COVID. Also said in regards to Romain possibly running Gateway, if he's comfortable. Team owner Dale Coyne said that if he wants to do Gateway, we could potentially run a third car for him at that race. So, yeah. Assuming Pietro chooses Gateway over Le Mans, if there's no date change for Le Mans, which just moved from June to August... If he wants to do that, uh, obviously he'll do it, and they'll happily run a car for him, and it sounds like Dale's open to putting a third out there uh, for a man, a Romain. Uh, and, yeah, if for whatever reason Pietro does not do it and Romain does, then, hey, maybe he pops into the car. So it sounds like either way, Daniel, they're in pretty good shape. Evan Scarborough. Hey, Evan. Says, will the PJ1 track bike compound that proved to be treacherous for the Texas race last year still be there this year? Well, there you go, asking a question that if I was better at my job, I would go and take a look up front. Uh, 
this isn't actually a job. This is just a thing that I do uh, for amusement, entertainment, and ridicule. Uh, let's see. So I'm actually not editing any of this out, just leaving it in. I'm uh, going to go to the... Okay, here we go. Going to the Texas event uh, calendar. Let's see. I could be a 1,000% wrong. I usually am. It looks like the first event of the year there, major event, uh, will indeed be IndyCar. Now, if there's been a race at Texas and I don't know about it for NASCAR this year, it's just an acknowledgement that I don't follow NASCAR for the most part. But at least according to their schedule, Evan, we have IndyCar there May 1st and 2nd, which we already know. NASCAR All-Star Race in June. Uh, what else? Xfinity and Trucks in June. And what? They're there during the playoff weekend. So uh, in October. So I apologize if I've missed something. Let me just see if I can find some other stuff. Um, there's, there was a premier gun show at Texas Motor Speedway in March. Yeah, it looks like IndyCar is going to be there first. So... The real question would be, what is the overall track condition coming off of winter? I would have to assume with snow and rain and everything else, the oval would be fairly neutral in terms of one lane being better than the other. I can't say that for absolute sure, Evan, uh, but I can say that the issue, for those who remember, the issue uh, last time we were there was they had that compound up high. It was then scrubbed and removed, and there was actually a really significant loss in grip by going up high, whereas the Firestone rubber, the bottom lane, really became a more or less a one-lane circuit. Lots of rubber being put down, lots of grip to be found by comparison, but with everything being scrubbed off, that PJ1 compound being ground away, scrubbed off, whatever you want to call it, that upper lane, anytime the car has ventured up, they found indeed the right side tires, if not the whole car, if they got up there, dealing with suboptimal grip. So at least as the calendar appears, Evan, I think any car is going to be there first. I don't think the putting down of that gunk uh, would be happening before they get there. Therefore, there'd be nothing to scrub off and potentially repeat the problem. If I'm wrong, uh, I'm sure I will be educated as such. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal, Richie Deshpond. Two questions, one technical, one not. During the month of May, teams often talk about body fit, as I understand it. This is to ensure a smooth body with no panel gaps or discontinuities. Great word. That could create drag. Am I correct? You're 100% correct. Uh, how is the body fit done? What process and tools are used? Uh, let's see. I'll give you a very basic one, and that is the gaps that you mentioned. Uh, teams are allowed to use a tiny bit of body filler, a little. They're allowed to perfect the areas that are imperfect, keeping in mind that in theory, every, we'll just say side pod that comes out of every mold, whether it's a Delara IndyCar, uh, uh, Name all the various chassis used throughout the world of open wheel racing. Every panel that comes out should be identical. They aren't. Um, depending on how they cure, depending on a few variables, they aren't all 100% identical. And so 
in this instance, IndyCar is pretty cool about letting teams really make things as perfect as possible. So if you have watched your average resto mod, whatever type of crap that's on um, one or more channels about retro car rebuilds and whatnot, you know, you see a lot of the same kind of content there. I'm not saying it's tons of Bondo and just unlimited behaviors there. But there is, you know, not a ton of pushback uh, in terms of trying to make things uh, fit as well as possible. Remove any gaps in the panels that you mentioned uh, and try and create as perfect an aerodynamic shape as possible. Uh, Fitting the floor takes a long time. Fitting it correctly. um, I mean, there's just, yeah, it's, it's something that takes... A long, long time. I'm over sharing something probably many of you know, but inevitably every year at the Speedway during practice, heck, even during qualifying, someone's going to crash later in the week and or during qualifying weekend. And they will wheel out a backup car and you will hear uh, that it doesn't have a body fit done to it. And that's because just from a time and resource and chassis, (laughs) volume of chassis standpoint, teams aren't sitting around with two or three Indy 500 super speedway cars per driver. Uh, So you have all the primary ones that have had the body fit perfected and whatnot. We're not talking about driver A crashes. They've got an extra one perfectly fit and one after that in case they crash again. Um, just not a reality and so what ends up happening is the driver goes out in a car that probably isn't optimized aerodynamically and they are down a mile per hour at minimum tends to be the number maybe a little bit more throw in some of the things that also might not be optimized because they're not using that beautiful indy 500 chassis that they've been working on for months to make perfect arrow wise also rolling resistance-wise with wheel bearings and all kinds of bearings. You get a car and you go, oh, yeah, it's our road course car, and we've put the Speedway bodywork on it, but they go out and they're significantly slower than prior to the crash. This is why. Um, The time required to make the car perfect, there just isn't enough time. It takes a long time not enough between, uh, say, crashing, leading into qualifying, and then to the race itself. Uh, So, yeah, you're spot on on all that. Your non-technical question, you say, what would you like to see in an IndyCar scripted series? And why is it centered around Joe Tonto now running his own team in the NTT IndyCar series? Funny you should mention that, Hrishi. I'm uh, I'm just starting to pick up on uh, a, I don't know how long it's going to be. It's going to be the last thing that I do on Driven, by the way. I know last year I committed something like 12,000 words, 11,000 words to a uh, um, uh, viewer's guide for the movie. Well, we do indeed reach, I think, the third week of April, uh, the 20th anniversary of Driven. So last year, during the shutdown, I started interviewing a bunch of folks, and I have lots more to interview. And so I'm trying to do uh, an oral history of the worst racing movie ever made. And I just... 
got some of those interviews transcribed. And like I said, there's a lot more that are going to come. Spoke with former CART uh, president Andrew Craig over the weekend and interviewed him for it. Um, oh, man, there's just some crazy gems, crazy gems in there. And it might be longer than my viewer's guide. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I'm only going to do it once. And the 20th anniversary seems like the time. So, uh, yeah. So love that you mentioned Joe Tonto uh, from Driven running his own team. What would be, uh, well, scripted series? I have no idea when it comes to scripted. Um, I I would really just love to see IndyCar's version of Formula One's Drive to Survive. And, well, so we're just talking about copying what they do in F1 Pruitt? little bit. Keep in mind that it's a very driver-centric, team-centric, team-boss-centric production. It's good stuff. Those are the highest profile people, folks that are best known. IndyCar's unique aspects compared to Formula One, family. It's a family-type series. Uh, every driver that comes over, Romain Groschamp being the most recent, says, whoa, holy cow, you all talk to each other. You, you kind of sort of like each other before you go beat each other up on the racetrack on Sundays. Like This is a different thing. I think in there you got something. And there's still drama to be found. Mechanics and crew members really are not part of Drive to Survive. Now, granted, Season 3 is about to come out, so we'll find out if they've changed that directive a little bit. But I would say IndyCar working with a production group to do their version of Drive to Survive, but using the unique angles that we have, also the history, 100-plus years as mentioned, there's a lot. I think there's so much untapped here. I mean, hell, I make a living trying to tell stories about IndyCar and IMSA as well, but a lot of it's what's happening, the latest piece of news about this team signed this person and that driver got fired and whatever. I get that, but ultimately we're trying to bring the series to life for you to make you give a crap, hopefully. Um, imagine having a proper budget and the ability to go throughout the paddock at every race and pick up those themes and film things and have ideas of, all right, I know this driver welcomes this other driver into the team, but I know that they don't like each other. I don't know if the one coming in realizes they aren't liked, but I know for sure the one who's been there for however long really truly does not want them there. Got it. Well, we don't have to turn this into some sort of TMZ scandal type uh, IndyCar drive to whatever, but there's just as many undercurrents and just as many unexplored things that in written form, writing about some of these dramas, eh, that would get dismissed as too tabloid and nonsensical. And that's why you don't see them. In a documentary style thing, uh, yeah. Um, remember, for those of you who watched Drive to Survive, there were some pretty gritty, tense moments between Red Bull team principal Christian Horner and former Renault F1 uh, team principal Cyril Abitabul. And wow, like I imagined these things 
in hearing about some of the decisions of, of leaving Renault and making this change and doing like in my mind, when I read that news, I wondered like, man, what was that like behind? I know that there was some discord here. I know this didn't play out super happily. Then to get to see, Oh, <laughs> you're right. Wow. That is frosty or wow. That is prickly. Don't, be mistaken in thinking that it's just F1. Rishi, you'll find that in IndyCar constantly. So uh, I'd rather go that direction compared to any other. Somehow, friends, picking back up either later Monday night or Tuesday morning has now turned into 11.48 a.m. on a Thursday. It's been a little bit busy on the home front and work front, so... Apologize for the tardiness here. We also need to leave uh, for physical therapy in about 45 minutes. So let's see how far I can get. Hopefully knock out this episode here. Jordan Darwin, you say, I really like the look of the 2018 and later Dryer and Reinbold cars with their wrapped slash painted chassis floors. Totally agree with you here, Jordan. Says, I'm surprised that other teams have not followed Leads me to believe there is a detriment to running this on the floor, question mark. Maybe a small loss of downforce or something similar, maybe. Uh, what do your IndyCar engineer friends think of these colored floors? Uh, also says, I'm encouraged by your wife's tremendous and relentless fighting spirit. Continued prayers for the amazing Mrs. Pruitt and yourself. Thank you, Jordan. That's really sweet of you. I did not reach out to engineer your friends to get their thoughts on it. Although... I believe that was a wrap done for uh, the DRR floors. Main thing that comes to mind from this old engineer is, yes, while it looked beautiful, that is indeed just extra mass uh, being added to the car. And I know we're not talking a lot of weight, but I would have to believe that most teams would say, you know, we have ballast that we use. It is centralized in the most optimal place that uh, could be put. So let's not try and add, even though we're talking ounces, I don't know how much, uh, how many ounces, but uh, I don't think it'd be a pound worth of uh, material. But whatever the number is, Jordan, I would have to assume that the mindset of many engineers would be, yeah, uh, bare carbon works just fine for us. And since heat of having that dark color doesn't really negatively affect anything from a performance standpoint, uh, there's no real thermal value that they would gain by going to a lighter color with a wrap or paint. Um, nothing really there. So my guess is, hey, even though it's not much, uh, we would just rather not add some unnecessary material that fans out to the outer width of the car and then all the way back to the uh, trailing edge of the car on the floor. Uh, it's just not something that I think at a place where every little kernel of efficiency and improvement is just paramount to every decision and action I can see why teams have not followed suit. I'm sure that the marketing and promotion folks within the teams might have said, hey, that's really beautiful. Can we do it too? 
then they hear the reason why not, and then it doesn't happen. So, But it doesn't stop a smaller team like a Dryon Reinbold from doing it if they want to. Let's go to Drew Wetzel. It says, how reliable is car handling feedback from less experienced drivers? Uh, is a few years in junior open wheel racing a sufficient learning opportunity for a driver to learn how to communicate what he or she's feeling in an indie car? Or is this a natural skill that comes easier to some? Bit of a yes, maybe, no, and everything in between answer here, Drew. No single answer I can offer for you. The natural ones, the ones who have, as you mentioned, this natural skill uh, and ability, this analytics ability, this sensory, heightened sensory ability where they can feel and receive what the car is doing at all phases during a lap and also have the mental ability if we're thinking of whether it's photographic terms or video or otherwise shutter speed right there are or i guess we could go computers we could go you know whatever hertz rate processing speed whatever phrase or terminology you might connect with the best there are some drivers who are able to capture and log and hold on to what's happening as they are flying down the racetrack at, say, one one-hundredth of a second of a frequency of those mental snapshots. Click, 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 just firing, firing away, as I struggle to say the word firing, just burst speed, but throughout the entire lap, just the whole time. And so when they pit, or if they're communicating over the radio during a race, they have this amazing catalog of information stored up that they can then relate to their engineer of what's happening, good, bad, what they'd like changed, etc. There are others, and I will say that in my limited couple of years of racing a Formula Ford bottom of the junior open wheel ladder, I didn't get to race as frequently as I wanted. I did not have a chance to develop this ability very much. I took very slow shutter speed snapshots. And so as a result, I was not nearly as good as I should have been at documenting mentally everything that was happening with the car. I hadn't developed the sensory inputs from my entire body to know exactly what the car was doing under braking on turn in acceleration etc how is it acting how is it dancing how is it moving what is it doing correctly or incorrectly for my needs oversteer understeer etc uh hey is it rolling too fast or too slow is there an anti-roll bar change i should consider or a spring change or something these things were occurring to me in chunks and only usually when something big happened oh wow the car just did this oh gosh i remember that okay i'll log that away and so i'd come out of a 20 minute session with a couple of things on my mind drew you compare that to some drivers who at that same age that just starting out in the road to indie type thing 
have the ability to be clocking at this crazy high rate, capturing things at a crazy high rate, remember it, can call it back. And that's another thing you hear from some drivers like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it just happened and I was just there and I was just driving, but man, uh, I, I don't remember everything in the minutia that I should. The memory part, something as well, Drew, that, you know, it, it's certainly something to try and improve if you don't have that capability. What you find more often than not is it's there or it's not there. And you have someone who can analyze things in super minute details and their sensory inputs are firing at a crazy high frequency. They're capturing it in their brains, what they're seeing through their eyes as well, capturing it at a super high frequency and they can rewind the tape and give you exactly what happened here. There turn three on this lap. It did this and then it did that. And here's all the things I can share to help you make a better race car for those who don't have that ability. And there are some IndyCar drivers, some IndyCar champions and Indy 500 winners who really can't tell you what the car is doing. <laughs> they can give you broad brush strokes, but yeah, they're not going to hit the, uh, if giving accurate chassis feedback to help an engineer was a dartboard, forget bullseye, like barely even hitting the fricking board. Uh, maybe hitting the ceiling on a couple of occasions. And the, yet, they can drive the freaking wheels off the thing. That puts a lot more emphasis on the engineer to look at data, parse some of the subtleties from what the driver is saying. Maybe they can't tell you a lot about what happened while it was happening, but you get a feeling of how they talk about what was happening without a lot of specifics, but kind of interpret and then you get really solid, but maybe not as good as everyone else setups. Uh, and then there are others who are somewhere in the middle where they're not bad. They're not great, but they put a lot of work in to get to that place where they can give great feedback. So like I said, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's one of those really subtle nuances in the sport that is so hard to accurately express to those who don't know a lot about how the sport works. Uh, maybe the, the best, if I was going to throw it out to another sport, Drew, um, uh, American football, and I say American because I know we have some international listeners when the word football is used, doesn't equate to us running around with helmets on our heads and pigskin footballs. Um, you have some quarterbacks, for example, who have a giant arm can throw a ball with amazing accuracy, but aren't necessarily good at reading the defense and picking up who's doing what on the other side of the line and how they may or may not plan to track, whether it's a wide receiver or whatever. Basically, not great at spotting and deducing and then processing what the defense is trying to do and how to react to it to circumvent their plans. And so as a result, you get some quarterbacks where you go, wow, well, probably not going to win a Super Bowl. You're going to put up some pretty amazing numbers from time to time. 
you are going to have some amazing highlights of this crazy pass and this crazy thing that you did huge touchdown, but you're probably also going to have plenty of interceptions as well because you're not seeing everything happening as quickly as you should. And then having your own ability to adjust and react and do the thing that's going to lead to success. Some of that, it's an identical parallel here, Drew, to race car drivers. And in those instances where you're not able to download everything you're seeing and give it to an engineer and have the engineer solve it for you, you know, being in the car and knowing what adjustments to make in a race uh, or to call for during a pit stop, there's, again, some pretty strong parallels here. Those who are amazing at it tend to be the ones we look at as perennial championship contenders. Those who've had sporadic success, maybe a championship, a Indy 500 win, but you always wondered why they don't have more, could be some uh, deficiencies here uh, on this exact topic. Thanks for sending this in, Drew, by the way. Really love these. Let's get into the intricacies part uh, of the show. Uh, Todd Hudson. Hey, Marshall. First timer here. Todd, my man. Uh, Just curious if the arrow rake that McLaren was using uh, at the Laguna Seca test recently is something that could be brought to the ovals as well. Uh, I know um, that they have to drive a little bit slower and steadier. Uh, So, yeah, it's a steady state thing to uh, try and benchmark changes at the same speeds high it's high speeds it's not low speeds but uh it's a test a true test process that is run that isn't like most other tests where hey we're gonna make a, a chassis setup and you know go 100 percent and tell us how it handles uh he says so i could see how the speed aspect might make it tougher on large ovals there's no reason not to or that they couldn't or any team could not might be more a question of access, I would think. We're talking about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the biggest speedway of all for us, the one that means the most. To my knowledge, IndyCar does not allow, or IMS does not allow private rentals by IndyCar teams. There are the open tests uh, where all teams are invited. Uh, There are no private tests that I'm aware of where a team might try and do this uh, on their own dime, on their own time, uh, to learn such things. So what I don't know is whether IndyCar would allow a team or multiple teams to try and do this during an open test, maybe at a point where there's no one else on track. Because, and I'm just throwing random numbers out here, Uh, if we're lapping Indy in testing at 222, 223, 24, whatever it might be, and you have someone wanting to go out with the arrow rake to measure uh, the whole wide variety of things that they would um, at, you know, lapping at a constant 185 or constant 200. Yeah, that would not be good. <laughs> that would not be a, uh, a thing to allow. So, um, yeah, a little bit of a gray area, Todd. I'd also just overstate the obvious here. There could be something in the regulations about this being allowed or disallowed or otherwise that I've missed, but I think overall, or maybe um, you know, the, the bigger picture here is this really hasn't been much of a thing. Um, this really has not been a thing for IndyCar to try and manage. 
uh, and I would think have big big rules already set in place to govern it. Now, could that change? Might that change? Um, yeah, very much, very much so. All right, let's see how many more we can rattle through here. J.J. Gertler says, since this is a family program, let's ask a family question. In Equal Cars, you have all the IndyCar driving members of racing families face off. Best family average finish wins. I don't know why I separated those two. Best family average finish wins. I'm uh, probably forgetting some, but A.J. and Larry Foyt and A.J. the fourth versus Bobby, Al, Louie, and Al Jr. and Robbie Unser. Emerson and Fit, Pietro Fittipaldi, Brian and Colton Herta, Derek and Connor Daly, pairs of Wally Dollenbacks and Ari Lyondykes, couple of Laziers, the Ray Halls, the Mears Gang, and all those Andretti's. Uh, who wins IndyCar Family Feud? Oh, that's a great one, JJ. It really, really, really is. Huh. I would have to go with the Unser's. Um, I would be lying if I said I, I had a great grasp of, of Louis Unser's accomplishments outside of Pike's peak. Um, and I know Robbie was good, but not great by any means. Also never had real top, top drives as well. But, uh, I would just say that, yes, while we're talking five and numerically, they certainly come out on top in this family question. You take Uncle Bobby, you take Al, and you take Al Jr., and I I just don't see how you top that. I, I would think, in terms of things being close, I mean, Mario and Michael, right? Uh, those two, we're talking about best family average. Those two would put the average pretty high, where Jeff Andretti and Marco Andretti would push things. Uh, might bring it down a little bit. Then you'd have John Andretti maybe bringing it up a little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm wrong. Numerically, there's five as well. But, yeah, I, I do think, though, that uh, in the Andretti family, there's two that stand out as everyone be wary. Oh, my goodness. The Mears gang, uh, I mean, the Rocket himself, Rick, obviously. His son, Clint, never, you know, got too far. Uh Let's see. And his brother Roger did well, but not amazingly. Uh, the Hurtas, I think that's a great one. There's a pretty big separation between AJ and the rest of the Foyt. So I think on this one, uh, yeah, pretty easy. Uh, I'd say the answer is for sure, my friend. Uh, Snowy Crash says, terrified to ride in for the first time. Well, I don't know why you'd be. Uh, I said, uh, what's the deal with scooters used around the paddock? They look lame. They're an unnecessary danger to drivers and crew, an extra pollutant to our environment, lost opportunity for a sponsor, etc. I even saw Roger Penske on one, a risk we don't need. You know, uh, each week we tend to get a question that's just really out of left field. And I appreciate you for being the one to embrace the left field here. Um, why would people on an incredibly condensed and tight daily schedule with usually minutes between major functions use small uh, well-known and readily accessible mobility devices to go from place to place um yeah as for them looking lame and i say that's an opinion got it no worries and an unnecessary danger to drivers and crew 
completely unfounded. I mean, that's, you know, we're making up problems here. Uh, I'm not saying there's never been an incident with a scooter, but it's one of those things where you go, yeah, if this happened once every other race weekend, it'd be something to talk about. It might not be something that happens once per year. So that's not an issue. The extra pollutant to our environment, I'd say is a massive overreach to try and make a point. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've seen some drivers, our own French fry, Sebastian Bourdais has his little electric, I don't know what you call it, uh, a little electric razor type deal, uh, uh, skateboard, stand-up skateboard, electric type whatever thing. Uh, we see some of those, but I'm just saying, uh, if we're looking for things to criticize about IndyCar and we have gone down the list to get to scooters as being the significant bone to pick, I would think we're doing okay. Uh, our pal Trip Hazard, MP, are you able to say exactly what it is that Porsche were looking for in the IndyCar engine formula when they were in serious discussions with the series? Um, I would look at Porsche's overall f- strategy and say that when they were having these discussions i don't believe there were many but when they were having these discussions in uh what latter part of 2018 early parts of 2019 indycar was really pushing its loud and authentic and bold and all that type aspect about its new and upcoming engine formula i don't know and i apologize because it's just my brain if they had announced they were going hybrid uh at indian was it 2019 maybe um, so I don't believe hybrid was really an angle or a topic, uh, that would have been on the table with Porsche at the time. I think that angle, the, Hey, we're going to go and do something that's just celebrating speed and performance. We don't have a BOP. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. I think that might've been the angle that intrigued Porsche intrigued to the point of like, Hey, we're really seriously going to do this. Obviously not, but I think that was an interesting angle for them to consider within the company pretty short amount of time after started learning about, Oh, okay, well you're going hybrid here, full electric there. You are kind of sort of moving away from big ballsy demonstrations of horsepower other than say your customer GT and, and factory GT racing. That's the one exception here. Um, I think it was just a curiosity followed by a change in overall vision for the company. And that vision didn't really fit. I believe again, timeline wise with hybrids being announced soon after, uh, that's great. And we've since seen that they've said, Hey, we do want to do a hybrid, but we want to do that in sports cars, not in IndyCar. Uh, let's see. Gregor Pitorowicz, uh, Pitorowicz, I apologize if I've mangled your last name a little bit, Greg. Uh, he says, if McLaren were to leave Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson, SPM, how attractive may SPM be to new investors or title sponsors, considering what McLaren has brought to the partnership? I love that question. I think for sure this team, if things go the way I expect, them to go at the by the end of the year i think they're going to be in a fairly prime position i don't 
think McLaren is wanting to go. I know I had suspicions things might not work out particularly well. So far, been proven a thousand percent wrong. And I, again, just looking at how things are going, I can only see more positives coming their way. So the question of if McLaren were to leave, would SPM be in a enriched position from a maybe company value standpoint, investors wanting to take part, new partners, sponsors wanting to join in. I think they'd be in a really strong place, better than they've ever been. Don't think McLaren's looking to leave though, but if they were, I would just say the the only thing that maybe throws a bit of a wrench into this is McLaren has been doing a lot of either the sponsor bringing or the sponsor servicing. That includes Arrow, from what I understand. So I believe SPM on their own could be attractive, minus McLaren. But I'd then have to ask how much of the marketing and sales and business development strength might be leaving with McLaren and how could that possibly diminish SPM in that regard? So yeah, another great question. Thanks for sending it in, Gregor. Uh, Reed Alford says, I know you touched on it last week, given the bonehead placement on the schedule uh, without at least a two week gap leading up to it, the Toronto race will be yet another COVID casualty. Um, Okay. Uh, does IndyCar have any kind of schedule contingency plan, perhaps add a second race to another weekend? Uh, also, do you see a Canadian stop happening in 22, Toronto or otherwise? I'm unaware of IndyCar having a, we're going to go here instead of there if Toronto does not happen type plan. Uh, something that I would uh, ask next time I check in with the series. I do believe we would have Toronto back. In 22, for sure. Um, I'm not yet ready to say we're not going to be going to Canada for an IndyCar race in mid-July. We have to see where things develop and how quickly they might develop, obviously, in terms of vaccine distribution in Canada, uh, border quarantining, you name it, uh, relaxation. So I totally get why one might believe it's not going to happen and you want to pronounce it now just saying that we have a couple of months before we get to the go no go position basically the middle of june is where things start to hit the go no go and yeah be interesting to see how far we come uh, in terms of positive progress on covid front to see if maybe it can be uh, run as scheduled Let's see couple more here and then we are done uh, let's see. Caleb Whistler says it's great to see the Music City Grand Prix add new owners, but is there a cause for concern that this event uh, is tight in finances based on the additions in the ownership group? I have no idea, Caleb, but I do love the fact that uh, it seems like there are new and, and high profile names getting involved from entertainment to you name it. Uh, there seems to be something here. Um, I just hope this isn't being seen as a big cash cow and folks getting involved because someone told them, boy, we're going to be able to rake in a lot of money and really, you know, 
uh, uh, bleed this thing from the beginning. So uh, I would say stay tuned on that one. Uh, Mark Sanchez spring is, says spring is almost here. May is closing in and the blue envelope should arrive in the mail soon. Our Airbnb is booked and our group is already t- talking about plans for the Indy 500 race weekend. So how soon before we hear whether the Speedway will have capacity limits for this year's 500 uh, or the Grand Prix to start the month? Uh, let's see. Will the Speedway hold the Snake Pit concert? Kind of hope not. Uh, the darn stage blocks our view of turn three from high in stand H. Last that I heard, we're going to get some serious specifics in April on this topic, Mark. Uh, when I spoke with our man Robin Miller, I think yesterday, I mentioned that, uh, hey, it might be worth doing a story just to keep folks in the loop like yourself about, hey, I know you want answers. I know you want a lot of things spelled out. Of course, here's the timeline when these things will come. Uh, so I believe it's April. I can't tell you if it's April 1st, 2nd or whatever, but, uh, that's what I understand. But I hope Robin will put something together here for you. That might help uh, Gary chin. Let's see. Are you our, you are our penultimate questionnaire. Uh, you say I was looking at a list of past Indy 500 winners and I feel bad for Takuma Sato. His reign as a defending race winner will be the shortest in history. Not even a year. Darn COVID. Well, uh, there's a height joke I could make here, but I won't. Um, yeah, mm. I, I hear you, Gary. Uh, it's not exactly like you're, you know, you're, you're the Miss America and you spend the whole year traveling and doing speaking engagements and you use the entirety of that year to go everywhere, coast to coast and around the world to, uh, show everyone your crown and uh just be the darling uh it's a huge thing it's a win there's plenty of media obligations that follow and pop up uh here there until the next 500 but i of course every driver would love to win the indy 500 and and have it forever there's no one that followed me i'm the best ever i'm the last ever i think takuma will be okay with this i mean if you asked him i'm sure he'd say of course i'd want to hold on to it longer before someone else wins it, if he doesn't win it again. I don't feel too bad for him, though, Gary. The guy's a two-time winner of the Indy 500. Um, Yeah, that's a pretty awesome life. Last one here goes to Mark Fleetwood. says, hey, Marshall, when you speak photography, it's evident uh, your passion for it. Are there a lot of sports journalists slash photographers out there? Is it a growing thing? Something new in this age? Should journalism schools add a good dose of photography if they haven't already? He adds, my wife was a journalism major in the 80s, but only had one very basic photography class. The photojournalist as a role or job that I, to my knowledge, Mark, is, boy, there's not a lot of that left, seen, uh, done, or otherwise in motor racing, there's a little bit. Um, there's a little bit, but not much. Uh, let's see. I mean, I'm trying to think of the greats, like a Jesse Alexander, right? That guy is a hero of mine. Pete Brock, for sure, is someone where, right, the guy took the incredible photos, then wrote the story, then filed it. There are some others for sure. Um, 
you what you get which is a little bit interesting and it's not necessarily mainstream and it's not always frequent but i know that with some either super veteran photographers that work today or some that have a little bit of celebrity because they you know invest a lot of time in uh positioning themselves as uh, gods on instagram or otherwise it's not uncommon if i look in a auto magazine and see that racing photographer a has written a story about something um and it's usually once or you know they might do two or three throughout their career or over a couple year span um but you get that And that's, again, kind of one of the major automotive magazines. What I see more often, and I love, is the either manufacturer-specific photographer, the one who's been shooting for Ford or Chevy or this or that, and they write columns or reports or whatever it is, do a historical piece about something, uh, for, you know, Ford magazine, Chevy magazine, and I'm, I don't remember the names of the various ones, or a Porsche magazine. Uh, Jeff Zwart is another one, both photo and video, and a writer as well uh, on the Porsche side. That's what I see more of, Mark, in terms of true photojournalists and photojournalism, as our cat Rocky meows and wants to be fed before we leave. But there's not a ton. So, like I said, uh, more club or manufacturer specific magazines you'll see a lot of that you don't see a ton of it anymore in major magazines i have to be honest i used to invest a lot of time at events to go out and shoot knowing that that was going to support everything that i wrote so i would file whatever story whatever session report race report and it would have all my own photos in it, cropped, ready to go, captioned, so on. With things getting a little bit busier, there being a greater need for more written content and video content, I don't do that nearly as much. I often find that I'll get to sneak out for maybe one session, maybe two during a weekend if there's four or five or six sessions total, but not nearly as much as I used to, and I do miss it. So, yeah, always considered the photography side that's the me time that's where i get to go have fun and and play and pretend to be an artist definitely wish that i was able to do more of that who knows maybe as time goes on i'll get back to doing more of that uh but beyond that not many of the the real photojournalists left working today that i can think of at least here in north america all right that is it with our little week in IndyCar, took me two attempts and four days to get it done. Week in IndyCar, listener Q&A episode. Thanks again for everything you sent in. All of those for our familiar, regular contributors. A handful of new questionnaires. And we hope that more of you send in first-time questions and continue sending them in as well. So, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our little thing we do each week. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. We'll speak to you in a few days.